You're listening to Irish Radio Canada and we just heard from James Morrissey and he was telling us all about Clatter Records and the recent uh, release for Christmas, just in time for Christmas, of the 60-year commemorative album of The Chieftains. And The Chieftains collaborated, as we discussed with James, with many groups and they put out one album, Fire in the Kitchen, which had Canadian artists with them. And one of the Canadian artists was Great Big C. What you hear in the background at the moment is Lucky Lucaloni, and it is with Great Big C. And that is a perfect introduction to say, I am sitting and I'm chatting with Sean McCann, one of the founders of Great Big C. And we're going to talk about Sean's career, uh, his music, his solo career, his uh, writing, and his recent release, A Shanty Man's Life. Sean McCann, thanks a million for coming along for a chat. Great to be here. So um, let's go right back to, to you're, you're in Ufi, or Sorry, I shouldn't say I don't know. Or does it, it is Nufi okay? You're in Newfoundland. Yeah, no, Newf, that's the that's a wrong word. And most people, I'm I always impatient and correct. I uh, there's two sides of that. There's a negative, a very negative connotation to that word. That was um, an, an, a nickname afforded to us by the Americans who came in, pretty much took over St. John's in the Second World War, became a base. And the negative connotations are drunk, stupid, crazy, lazy, and it's stuck. And um, there seems to be a bit of a divide between rural and city St. John's, I guess, Bayman and townies, as we call them. And some people wave that flag and some people don't. But uh, I don't believe in nicknames. And I have a personal experience with that term, which is negative. Right. Great Big C had to deal with that over and over again, and we saw what it what it brought out, and it wasn't the best in people, and it made our job really hard. So we banned the term uh, right from the get go. I, I appreciate the, the opportunity to explain our position. No, and I'm glad you did because one one of the reasons I do what I do is I actually hate the stereotypical perception of the Irish in North America. We, yeah, we share a lot in common there. I think the Irish are not the 17th of March with. Green hair and green beer. No, but what they are is a beautiful, educated, c- capable of some of the most brilliant poetry and melodies and ever ever made. Right. So, <laughs> so I know different. I've been in Ireland like nine times, and it's just that's what I learned. It was an uplifting, and it did defeat the stereotypes. And that's the problem with stereotypes. They dumb it down. And um, sometimes people who are, I think, marginalized communities, uh, they uh, they accept the terms that are branded on them. And, and it's a uh, bit like, you know, cool. it's being a paddy, you know, exactly. and, 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 you know, it, depending on who, where it comes from, being a paddy is okay, depending on someone else, it's not okay. Yeah, and that's exactly where that term is with us. Um, it's funny, I, I run into people like, well, I've met lots of people who use that term, and I'm like, yeah, and I will disagree with them till the end, <laughs> and I, I do. I and sometimes they get pissed off with me, and I, I'm like, okay, you do what you're going to do, but. Here's what I take offense to. When you put up a poster advertising my concert, you can't sell it that way. Right. That's my right. It <laughs> that's is. where we it draw is. the line. And I've lost, I've lost promoters over it, and I don't care. Yeah. Well, you know what? That's telling me, and I'm delighted. You're a proud Newfoundlander. Absolutely. Understand and, and Newfoundland. And it's positive pride. And that's the wonderful thing, and that's, I think, is some of what we're going to talk about. You're a musician from, from when you were a toddler. Yeah, I grew up uh, certainly in the tradition. Newfoundland is uh, and St. John's, it's um, an island. You know, Newfoundland's an island, in the, much like Ireland, and we're just on the other side of the Atlantic. But we're an island. We're isolated, and um, traditional music. We're old. 
You know, we're 500 plus years, 520 years old or something now. And all these great songs came across from the old countries of Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales. And they, uh, the first, uh, I guess, settlers in Newfoundland. And they, uh, they took the songs and they stayed there. For whatever reason, it was like it was frozen in time. So when I grew up, it wasn't like I had to go and hunt down a, a child ballad or a sea shanty. These things were very present and being sung live in the pubs, live in kitchens, and lo- and on the radio. They were, you know, I grew up with f- bands like Figgy Duff and Ryan's Fancy, the wonderful grand band, just to name a few. These were the most popular bands in my town. So it wasn't like it was old folks music or hard to find. It just was there. It was the most popular form of music. So that's where I that's where I kind of grew up with uh, first song. I think I was two years old and I was singing the night Pat Murphy died. You know, right. one of the first songs I ever learned. And so a bit was, like uh, accents, you know, how music evolves, how it evolved in Newfoundland as distinct from how it evolved in Ireland. While you have the common thread, there's a slight divergence. And it's a bit like the dancing in Quebec. You know, they they form of foot dancing in Quebec, which while it might have evolved from some Irish dancing, the roads slightly part, but you know they came from the same start. We were kind of evolved in our own, and there's some great just pure Newfoundland tunes, but you know where the tradition is that they come from, you know? Mm-hmm. Newfoundland is 50% Irish, 50% English. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in that sense, we actually certainly shared in our um, a religious divide. <laughs> you know well. It was just... <laughs> That was the reality of my life, too. So at what stage then would you have considered that music was where you wanted to be or where you want your career to be? Yeah, I was a late bloomer. I was in university uh, doing a doing – I did a, I have a degree in philosophy, which means I'm functionally unemployable. The thing is, you know why. Yeah, I understand why. <laughs> I, I can think – I can question with the best of them. While I was doing that, I ended up in doing a, starting a master's in folklore, actually, which is even worse on an economic level. But I was just so desperate to find more songs. I love them. St. John's has more bars per capita than anywhere else in North America. It is the Dublin of Canada. So one of the easiest places for students to work were in the like many five or 600 bars that we had. We only had 200,000 people. So very much a strong pub culture. So we all, uh, I was working there and I, um, and every, the good thing about St. John's was the bands were good. High quality bands still are and cover was cheap or free. Entertainment was very easily, you know, people were spoiled. And um, I was working as a busboy in one of these pubs, and I um, I just started to listen to the bands, and I, re- I just figured I wanted to be in a band because they got paid more than I did. They didn't seem to have to work as hard. They had a lot more fun, and they met a lot of girls. So I, uh, if I had to break down my, my motivations, I'd have to be honest, and that's what they were. <laughs> so then was Great Big C your first band? No, we were in a band called uh, the NRA, which was not based on the IRA or the NRA in, in America. It was right. the Newfoundland Republican Army. So I guess it was kind of an IRA kind of idea. And Newfoundland has a very twisted history with its uh, status in Canada. We were the last province to join. We certainly didn't suffer the same troubles that Ireland did in any, any way, but, uh, and we were naive and young. But we we did feel the first group of people to be educated to university level were, would have been my parents type thing. But it was in the 70s that we were able to be that. And uh, we started to realize that we were really kind of our, – our entry into Canada was kind of 
on the border of it was certainly manipulated, borderline illegal, unfair for sure. So there was a feeling among people our age that we should have gotten a better deal and we could do better. And we started to understand our history and that we, we, we certainly came in in a disadvantaged way in a naive way. So this is where this I, I name came from. Anyway, the band was nine a nine-piece band made up of three couples <laughs> and myself and Bob. We ended up playing one show and then the band broke up because the relationships came apart. <laughs> so so that was that. But we won we won a talent show at the university. That was the show. We and myself and Bob I guess got the bug right away and we just proceeded and then we we got this guy Daryl Power, who's who's a local guy playing the blues, uh, real nice fella, friendly guy, capable, knew the folk stuff really well, and three of us started um, with the bass player Jackie Sancroy, and then we were Rankin Street, and we actually recorded a cassette. Yeah. Well, you know, we weren't very good, and uh, but we were very employable, and we you know we 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 were we learned how to make cassettes and do all that kind of stuff. We learned a lot. And it's interesting. I was just looking the other day. This song, this thing has like 20 songs on it. 11 of the songs on this uh, cassette were recorded eventually by Great Big C. So it was it was definitely worth the effort. It, it, it amounted to something more than the band. Okay. So it was traditional, mostly Irish or English folk songs. Right. Key shanties right. and you know the stuff Great Big C eventually became for famous for. Right. Right. And uh, but that's where we figured out how to do it. And uh, and then we evolved into Great Big C when we found our great big frontman, which was Alan. Yeah. So the transition and then Great Big C, the formation of it and the success that that had, was probably a bit beyond your wildest dreams at the time. We wanted it. We knew what our we set our targets. We wanted to get a record deal. We wanted to be huge. We knew we weren't the we were by far not the best musicians from in St. John's at the time. I mean, we're living in a town with Figgy Duff, the Grand Band, and Ryan's Fancy, like. We just weren't as good as as the guys that had gone before us, and we knew it. But we just we tried to learn from their experience and from our own hard knocks as we kind of came through it. And we did learn, and we learned with every we failed our way forward. But we were people say what what was the difference? Again, it wasn't because of our talent. It was because we were just determined. Right. And right. the moratorium, the cod moratorium, started in '92, so our economic options for success were very small. So we we were all educated, we all had student loans, and we all wanted to give it a go. And we probably wouldn't have done it. You know, what happened was a strange thing happened. Uh, Toronto record labels, Warner and Sony and EMI, they started signing bands like the Rankin Family, uh, the Irish Descendants, um, who else, the Barry McNeils. Everyone started getting record deals, so we were like, we let's go. And, it, you know, it seemed like an achievable thing, and for us it was. It wasn't hard. We didn't get it quick. We sold 10,000 copies of our first CD, <laughs> and, and Warner Brothers realized, "Wow, that's they're selling more than our acts. Let's we have we we want a part of it." And it was just, you know, honestly, it was sheer bloody mindedness. We just mm-hmm. no, mm-hmm. we gave ourselves two years to accomplish these goals, and we did. Right. And then right. we just kept building. We just kept going. And when the sled was pulling in the same direction, we were a pretty powerful force. That lifestyle. It's a tough lifestyle um, in every respect. And, uh, you know, you're living out of a suitcase. Uh, there's a lot of adrenaline. There's 
um, ups, there's downs, there's, uh, you go into a hall and you have a full crowd and they're with you. You go into another hall and you have, they're not necessarily with you. Um, how did you adapt to that? We, uh, again, we, we played some terrible shows. We played some, we played them all. We, there's not much we wouldn't do at the beginning. And there's not much, but in fairness, there wasn't much we couldn't weather. We were, we just were tough. We were really like tough. We just shook it off, kept going. But we did, you know, I mean, we were a party. We quickly learned that our brand was going to be and our, was going to rely heavily on Newfoundland expats who were, uh, you know, who had moved to the mainland. So we had this base that other bands didn't have. We knew how to run a bar into the ground. Like we, we were savages at cons- consumption, but also how to, how to, how to get people on board. And we were good at it. Our brand became party. And every night for us was Saturday night. It's an easy set. Like it's, it's, it's kind of an easy sell. It's, uh, you're selling quick and, quick and accessible happiness to people. <laughs> so we went with there, that. There's a high price for that, Sean. Oh yeah. I mean, I've, I ended up, uh, you know, I'm an addict, uh, alcoholic. And I've lost a lot of friends in the industry a lot over the years, and I'm lucky to be here. I've been sober. I've had my I'm 10 years sober last month, November 9th. But I wouldn't have been able to do that without the support of my wife. And I wouldn't have been able to do it really unless I left, got off the bus, and, and I had to make those big changes. And it cost me financially. It cost me uh, personal friendships. But, again, I was – I, I think I, you know, I kept the ruthlessness, the sheer bloody mindedness, like this is survival, and I have no regrets about um, the decisions I made, and uh, I'm still here, I'm alive, talking to you, and that's that's the result. You know, when you say this was survival, the irony of it all was at the time when you were with Great Big C, what you were going through was also survival, given the environment that was the great big sea environment and what i'm saying in a way is that the survival you were you were on the bus and that was a party bus so survival meant you stayed on the bus in order to survive and i guess that's one of the great dilemmas and it's at some stage the bus goes off the road um did the bus go off the road for you Oh yeah, like most alcoholics, things spiral out of control as I got older. You know, I just couldn't. You know, I was an Olympic drinker. <laughs> I was the best. We all drank, but I drank the most, and uh, I was really good at it until it wasn't. And uh, you know, it just took me a while to come around to it. I, I we wrote a book, myself and my wife, about mm-hmm. it called One Good Reason: Our Journey Together and How We Came Out of It. So, which you can get anywhere really, but it's on my website, SeanMcCannSings.com. But it's our story together because I wouldn't have got here without her. But I did the last tour on the bus sober. To speak to your point, and that that was the bridge too far. Right. That was, uh, and I, if I had my time back, I wouldn't. I just wouldn't have gotten on there. I, I for some reason, expected the world, to cha- that world, to wrap around me, <laughs> and ch- and change with me. And, Go and, but I was going in an opposite direction, really, and uh, it was probably too much to ask. So I'll take, I, I always say I take one-third of the blame for how that ended, which was badly. Right. So One Good Reason, a memoir of addiction and recovery, music and love. As you say, it's available on Amazon. Um, what inspired you? Why, why did you want to write and put uh, pen to paper? 
early in my recovery, you know, it was almost like there was a lot of open wounds that had to be dealt with. I had to deal with my own truth, which was sexual abuse by a priest when I was a teenager. People drink and use drugs for reasons. And this was uh, something I had to come to terms with. And, uh, you know, it was brutal. But what I didn't expect when I first sobered up, like, I had a lot of what I thought were friends. And uh, the day I sobered up, I, my phone stopped ringing. And uh, it was really hard. I mean, I was vulnerable. I was in a really, you know, sensitive time. And uh, I was alone. And I really felt that way. And uh, I think that – and I came through that by, you know, reaching out to people, you know, over – over a period of a year, I started to realize that I wasn't. There was other people like me, and they and they shared their stories. And um, I think I was really moved by by a few people. One of my friends, Sheldon Kennedy, has been very open about his life and what happened to him and his subsequent addictions. And and he's just been. Uh, I learned from people like that, and so then I was. I, I felt like I should share what I've learned. And when I did it, it was really scary but the first time I did it I just felt so much lighter and and I knew it had a positive impact and I feel like this is how I can give back you know people help me along I'm just passing it along I'm just you know playing it forward when um, you put an album out there uh, as you have at the moment and you've put a number of albums out since you left Great Big C the experience of publishing an album and your music is would have been Totally different in every respect than putting a book out there that was selling. I, and I'm using the term loosely, which was you were putting your soul on the shelf and and uh, exposing, as you say, your vulnerabilities, opening up and letting people into a part of your life that very few people are willing to let people into. Yeah, I mean, it was a hard thing to do. It took a long time and... Uh... That's why I'm glad Andrea came on board with the book because I wrote a whole book and it just felt for me it was and it was a powerful accounting of what happened and where I come from and how how it kind of ended up, which is a you know positive ending for sure. But Andrea had kept a journal in real time, and when you're intoxicated or hungover, you don't have full, you don't remember everything. But she did. Mm-hmm. And uh, when she contributed, she had kept journals in real time. And when she contributed, when I read them, I was certainly didn't portray me in the in a positive light. But it really, really drove it home. Like this is what it is. And I learned very uh, well. I knew this, but most people don't. That when you're an addict, you don't you don't live in a vacuum. Everyone in your orbit is affected by your problem, by your disease, by by what you're going through. And uh, I thought that was really important to share because, mm-hmm. you know, addiction is not a solitary thing. It's not this w- one thing. It's it's everybody, and it affects mm-hmm. us all. So this is where, for me, it was like, boom. We were, we wrote the book with, with her and gave her that voice. And I think it speaks to so many more people now, like people who – who 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 can benefit from reading it, and we hope people do. And we know we get a lot of feedback that people do, and it's wives and husbands and daughters and sons and friends and brothers and sisters, all who feel the impacts of this uh, this tragedy. Did the transition between 2012 and 2013 and the subsequent 10 years 
um, that would have radically changed your creative style. I can only imagine that how you now reflect and how you write and how you perform and how you live is totally different than it would have been prior to that. Yeah, I mean, for a while I didn't think I I just written so many songs under the influence of something that I didn't realize I I didn't know if I could do it sober. Mm-hmm. And um it was funny because that kind of prevented me from sobering up for a couple of years, but it it's ridiculous because like anything, you know, once you once you remove an impairment, you you actually you become more prolific, you you're, if you can do something good drunk, you can probably do it way better sober. Like I became a better writer and a better singer, better performer, uh, more on the ball, better at it, all things. Cause I was clear and I was confident and I still make mistakes and stuff, but I, I could figure stuff out so much faster. I didn't live in fear. It was uh, a revelation, you know, but I should have, when you look at it, you look at it objectively, like, yeah, you should have, <laughs> you should have expected that. And that was the result. And I think a big difference is before I was just, you know, I I wrote a lot of songs that sang about drinking a lot and not facing your problems and forgetting about them. And you're okay. I'm okay. I'm just a lucky bastard. Let's drink it off. Right. And it was just like pushing a shield out in front of me and just pushing, pushing, pushing. It's a great effect. And instead, I, uh, my other, my new, my, where I am now, I'm more open. I'm I'm like listening. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to interpret what's coming at me, and uh, I sing about those things, and they're far more complicated and harder to sell in many ways, but they're just more evolved, and I know they do speak to a lot of people, but it's not so much the push, it's more the pull. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Shantyman's life, and I know Shanty um, from an Irish perspective, of course, Shanty was an old house. And uh, uh, that was where we understand the word originally would have or it would have evolved from, because um, the old house would have been a poor hovel that people with limited means were just keeping themselves warm and a roof over their head. Um, so it was basic accommodation. But then um, it, it has morphed. And I know in the States it may have a different meaning even than it would have here in Canada and in Newfoundland. Shantyman's life. Tell me about it. Yeah, well, this if you the definition of shanty in America, American definition, American Webster's version is is literally lumberjack. Yeah. <laughs> and the uh, Newfoundland, the British or the Canadian version would would goes to sailors a sailor song, you know. <laughs> and I know shanty towns, you know, from Bob Marley's perspective, were were favelas, were were uh, ghettos, you know. So it's interesting the word shanty has has a lot of meanings. But um Shantyman's life a lot of these a lot of the songs that I grew up with were were in the naval tradition. Sailors because of St. John's where it is like so many Portuguese, Russians, Irish, British, everybody, Spanish, they all came and went from Newfoundland and the song state. Uh which means we had so much to pick from. But there wasn't as many in the um lumberjack tradition. And there's some, I just found some beautiful songs. Again, my folklorist training, uh, I knew where to look. And I, Grip McSee recorded, uh, River Driver, which was a beautiful one. Um, uh, but Shanty Man's Life is one I found, and it was just this very, op- very honest. It wasn't, like a lot of songs tend to romanticize 
the situation, you know, love of the sea or missing love, your loved ones. And, but they look back fondly on this old way of doing things. And Shanty Man's life was refreshingly uh, on the point. Uh, I would say honest. It doesn't, it talks about how hard it is and how cold it was and how dark it was and how lonely it was and how dangerous it was, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I love those lyrics because they didn't really sugarcoat this at all. And this was like, we're here, we're here for survival purposes. So really it's, it's a gritty song for me. And that's why I, uh, I really loved it. It was the first one I, I, I demoed out here and, and, and worked out. Um, I was drawn to it in a weird way because it's not this big sing-along. It's not like the others. It's, it's, it's a different, darker twist. But I, for, I guess for that reason, I was just drawn to it. What you're saying reminds me a little bit of, I suppose, what, when Luke Kelly recorded the Spring Hill mining disaster. Exactly, yeah. You know, it wasn't a pleasant story to tell. And there's no sing-along. And it's reflective of what is harsh reality. Yeah, and I think folk music um, does that, right? I mean, folk music tends to rise when things get tough. I anticipate folk music coming back in a big way now that we're in this COVID thing. And I remember uh, remember Shanty Talk happening. I was actually in the kind of start of this record. I'd had this idea. I've got another 80 sea shanties I've, I've kind of uh, curated over the years and found. I was the shanty man in Great Big Sea. That was my thing. Go find one, come back and sing it, you know, and I never stopped. You know, I just love it. I always will be that shanty man. And uh, I remember uh, my son coming in saying, Dad, you're going to be famous again. Like, check this out. And he showed me TikTok, and it was some young fella in in, uh, Inverness. (laughs) (laughs) And all these kids were coming together during COVID, and they were able to connect on this app, which was really cool because they they were able, they were jumping in together, and they were singing these sea shanties. Now, a lot of people don't realize that sea shanties were designed specifically to get to allow to enable people to accomplish very difficult tasks by working together, setting the tempo. Okay. I'm sure this was lost on the uh, the shanty talk generation, but I I saw this happening in real time on these apps, getting through a hard thing like which was COVID, and you know there's no greater challenge humanity's faced in the last few hundred years than COVID. I don't think maybe World War Two, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so and we, I know we won't get through it unless we work together. So when I saw this happen, this second on the internet, which is a you know a lot now, I knew like the shanties showed up at the very time that they were needed most in the dark of winter in the middle of the COVID. So I just saw that as a reason to continue down. I you know I always look for peripherals now because I'm alert, and that was like yeah you're on you're actually on the right path here. Get this record finished and and, and do it. And. uh you know, the only thing I didn't like about Shanty Talk was it was all kind of auto-tuned and very precise mm-hmm. and pretty. Mm-hmm. And shanties are just salty and dirty and rock and roll. <laughs> I, I don't shanty talk, but I shanty rock. Yeah. So that's what I do. Like, it's a bit like a rugby song. You know? Yeah. It's yeah. got to have some dirt in it for me. <laughs> so, Sean, when you say that, it gave you motivation then, because particularly for the artist community, at the last... 20 months at this stage if we're gone on, yeah, about 20 months. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it just shut down overnight and um, uh, there was no plan B. So I guess um, how did you how did you find and how did you cope and did working on this give you motivation? 
Yeah, we survived on virtuals for the year. We promote our book came out. We were supposed to do a national tour. Myself and Andrea, all that went away, and it, and it's not coming back. Mm-hmm. Certainly not in the near future. Oh. And truth be told, no one's talking about this, but there's a backlog of any new business in most theaters, venues, promoters. They're already they still have to get through because people book like 16 months to two years in advance. None of that happened. Mm-hmm. So for people like me, I'm an independent unfunded artists, you know, <clears throat> so it was hard, hard mm-hmm. financially and stuff, but it's only beginning to get, it's going to be even harder, mm-hmm. you know, as supports are drawn away and stuff. Um, there is still is no, so we're just, I'm just having to dig in really hard to invent mm-hmm. a future for myself and invent venues live. And so that's, there's that, you know, but I guess in answer to your question last winter, just the singing of these songs I mean, for a while, I stayed away from these traditional songs because it was like so on the nose. One of the comments I got from a great comment from Facebook was this is the this is the best Great Big C record I've never heard. (laughs) So so I was kind of like there's a trigger there for me. There's still pain there for me. So it was kind of funny. But I just I I got into this and I started to really enjoy the athletic singing, which is what's required for this kind of, you know, full on big belly singing. And I just, my family noticed when I came out of my studio here, I always had a really nice, my demeanor was lifted by going through these vocal workouts. Right. I recorded all the vocals and all the harmonies and the guitars here. Right. And we did it remotely through uh, through Hawk, Hawk in, their, in these little studios. But uh, as I felt better, because you never know and it's always a risk. But as I felt better, my personal reaction to the singing of these songs, I knew that I would, I knew it needed to be a record and become one. And then that motivated me to do the the really hard work. It took a lot of time, especially remotely, to get Gordy Johnson and Toxley Workman and J.P. Cormier to come together and do it all, not in the same room, mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. So you can only imagine the, the problems that that had. But we overcame every single one of them, and we made, in my opinion, my best record to date, which is always, always important. You know, I, if, I, if it's not an evolution, I don't want to go back. I want to go forward. I've talked to a number of artists over the last 20 months, and the number who have said to me that they struggled with picking up a guitar or singing, um, their motivation was gone. uh, You know, because, again, you're so dependent in a way from an, an audience and getting that feedback that as a performing artist, performing to a camera with virtual hand claps, to a small audience, couldn't possibly cut it. No, it's very cold, and uh, we were grateful to have Zoom. You know, we can do things like this, and uh, but it doesn't. It you know, it is. It's glass. It's cold, and we did our best with it. But I'm kind of looking forward to when it's over, and you can be in person and face to face. They're just that's what that's what the long tail of COVID, the damage will look. You know, there's going to be an awful reckoning when we start to do the body count but there's also Mm -hmm. going to be this mental health this separation we're human beings we're not meant to be you know socially isolating ourselves from each other that's Mm -hmm. not how we function that's never how that's not we don't do well and we we're we've we've come through it and there's still more to go and uh but we're gonna have to like go through a lot of (laughs) global therapy really and and uh, and and reconnect and and go back um, 
And I think a lot of artists are feeling that, you know, and uh, we do miss the live experience and we miss the, uh, the incomes. I mean, we've lost our music is free. You know, people, mm-hmm. we've, we've kind of been all of a sudden now everything's free and we're content creators. We give our art away. We create stuff. We have to feed the beast of Facebook and Twitter and mm-hmm. Instagram and TikTok and all these things. And it takes all this time. And, and, uh, I don't know. It's really difficult to survive financially. I mean, once we've lost all that, mm-hmm. you know, streaming, I took my stuff off of Spotify and Apple Music because I found out they only paid me a thousandth of a penny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the owner, Daniel Eck of Spotify, made $4 billion yeah. in the last yeah. couple of years. Yeah. So it's, there's a real breakdown in common sense here. And um, as an artist, I know how hard it is to kind of get your head up mm-hmm. and, and keep going. Mm-hmm. And there's so mm-hmm. much negativity in, when you look forward, you don't see bright lights. So we, what I try to do is invent my own. And, it, and if I can't see one, I'll, it'll, I'll make one. I'll, it'll come out of me and I'll put it out there. John, we're coming up to Christmas. It's an ideal time to um, reach into uh, a pocket and think about a gift. And if um, someone is um, worried about somebody's behavior, if they think they have an addiction issue, they should consider going to Amazon and look for One Good Reason, a memoir of addiction and recovery, music and love. And maybe. Or you can buy it from our website too, SeanMcCannSings.com. We'll autograph it for you and make sure you much better. get a message, a personalized message from us. Yeah. And much better. And there's no middleman taking a high commission. So, uh, right. Jeff Bezos is also quite wealthy. <laughs> So he go to Sean's website. Go to Sean's website, and you're going to get an autographed copy, whether it be for yourself or as a gift. Yeah, and if like you tell what, us what you, what you want, who it's for, and why, yeah, we'll put the extra effort in and send a personalized note to that person that you care about. Fantastic, and and you can have it. So you'll send it directly if needs be. So just absolutely, yeah, fantastic. That's because we're a small business. We we actually care about our customers. <laughs> and likewise. Likewise, if you don't want to read and you just want to sit and listen to some wonderful shanty music, same website. Same website. Same, same autograph. Same autograph. We have a limited, we have, we've decided, we, we made a thousand CDs. We've got about 200 left. Right. Uh, then they'll be done. Um, and, but we have digital downloads for sale. I did, I didn't stream the record yet. I may not. Again, I think it's unfair. I'm trying to make a stand. Yeah, but it's probably eventually have to end up there. But you can listen to my records and all my music on my website uh, for free. Go right and again, there. that's Sean McCann Sings dot com. Uh, just that, and Sean McCann Sings is one word. Sean McCann Sings dot com, and. Uh, you have a variety of other merchandise up there as well. I see. Uh, you have some nice hoodies. Uh, yeah, we just PGS. got the shanty panties. Yeah, <laughs> which are pajamas. Yeah, we have pajamas. We have hoodies. We have shanty men hats for men and women alike, all all shapes and sizes. Um, yeah, all cool stuff. We just got it for the season, and uh, we don't have a lot of it. We so we've it's taken off really quick with our loyal fan base, and uh, we just wanted to. People asked for it, so we figured it out how to do it. So it's there too. And you know, we all we we all hear about shopping local, buy local. We're local. This this is what it is. It's shop local, buy local. So again, SeanMcCannMusic.com is where you can shop local. And um, 
get yourself lined up there, Christmas gifts. And uh, I want to thank you, Sean, for taking the time. It's been great meeting you, great having a chat. And uh, Likewise, man. We're going to, to wrap up and share Shantyman's life with the listener. Groovy. Appreciate the spin. Take care. Thanks, Sean.